If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we bring you the second episode of Beyond Us, an all-new series made in partnership with Essentia Foundation. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Us series by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Uh, my name is Bernardo Kastrup. And my name is Fred Matzer. In this series, we will explore four concepts that underpin and define the modern world. Knowledge, competition, language and growth. And in each episode, we're joined by a leading thinker to help us and hopefully you see each concept in a new light. In the second episode of the series, we discuss competition what it is, how it differs from cooperation, what role it plays in evolution, and how the concept of competition shapes society. Here to discuss this fascinating subject with us is someone who has recently put forward a theory that, if true, means that our ability to compete for resources and survival has nothing to do with our grasp of reality. Yes, I'm talking about Donald Hoffman. Don, it's lovely to speak to you again. It's been a little while. Um, today we are going to talk about something completely different than what uh, the tone of our usual conversations uh, is. Something a little less metaphysical, but with metaphysical significance, which is the concept of competition. So before I even start, welcome uh, to this episode, uh, Don. Thank you very much, Bernardo. It's uh, great to be with you and, and Fred. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Great to have you. Let's dive uh, right in uh, then. Uh, we are talking in this series about four key concepts um, uh, that sort of drive our society. One of them is competition, and we thought it's only um, uh, appropriate to talk to you about competition because competition is one of the driving forces behind the evolution of the species uh, on which much of, uh, of your work is based. And not only does this concept have an enormous, yeah, even prehistorical significance because it has come to shape what we what we are essentially uh, it also drives for instance our economic system uh, which is largely based on competition so before we get into the details don i wanted to ask you how how do you see competition what is competition and why has it become so important for us human beings 
Right. So the framework that I'll address that in is evolutionary game theory, um, which is a mathematical model for evolution by natural selection. And there, there's the notion of different strategies. So you have different strategies for interacting with, you know, so think about a game where you have a bunch of players and you're, you're playing a game of chess or playing a game of what, whatever it might be, and you, have, you can have different strategies. And um, evolutionary, evolution doesn't restrict the strategies to just competitive strategies, right? You can have cooperative strategies. And, and so in evolutionary game theory, what, what we do is, is study uh, what will happen when you have different kinds of strategies interacting. So, so I'll give a, a, a concrete, simple example. <clears throat> so there's, um, suppose that there, there are resources around uh, and uh, there's a dove strategy for collecting those resources. A dove, um, when two doves meet, um, and, and there's a, a resource there, they will flip a coin and politely, whoever wins the flip um, gets the resource and the other one, they don't fight. There's no competition, they're, 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 so they're doves, okay? That's one strategy that you could have. And uh, it turns out that uh, if everybody's a dove, no one gets hurt and uh, it's, it's quite nice. Everything goes quite well. But now consider another strategy um, called the hawk strategy. And hawks, whenever they meet any other player, they always escalate. They, they will fight until someone loses. And, um, and so, whereas a dove will never fight, okay? So, so what happens is that if everybody's a dove, that's a very fit strategy. And cooperation works very, very well. The problem is that if you're a hawk and everybody else is a dove, then you will always win. Right. So every time you meet a dove, the dove backs down, you get all the resources and the dove loses and, and, and there's no harm to the hawk. Now, on the other hand, if everybody's a hawk, depending how, on how much damage you get when you fight, it could be very, very bad news to, to be a hawk. So, so what you see is there's no such thing as a good strategy or a bad strategy. The strategies are what they call frequency dependent. It depends on what the other players are doing and what strategies they have. So, so if everybody is cooperating, then it just turns out mathematically that being a hawk um, is more fit in the sense that you will win and, and, and get more, more payoffs. If everybody's a hawk, um, then it actually might be better to be a dove because um, you're not getting all the injuries that the, the, ha the hawks are, right? And so, so it turns out you can, by, by playing with how much injury you get when you fight versus how much payoff you get when you, you, when you win, you can switch the proportion, the long-term proportion of hawks and doves. And, and so, so that gives you a, just a feel in a simple game that, that evolution isn't just about cooperation or just about competition, it's about strategies. And, and it turns out there's no such thing as the right strategy. And so, so it's not the case that competition is the right strategy, right? That, that's just too simplistic. It, it depends on what the other players are, are doing and what the payoffs are. So it's really quite nuanced. And so what you, what you find in evolutionary theory is it doesn't just say we always compete. No, we, we, there's lots of examples in nature of cooperation and, and we can talk about them. Um, and so it, 
that that can evolve. Cooperation can evolve. Um, but but maybe I should stop and let you um, go where you want. Indeed, competition with other creatures, Don, has clearly been key to our survival as species. But what about the role of cooperation within the human species? Isn't this something overlooked as an equally defining feature of human life? Not at all. In evolutionary theory, um, cooperation is actually uh, an important strategy. And there's lots of interesting examples of, of that strategy in, in humans and, and in other species. Maybe I can start with an, an, another species just for a moment, which is, which is, is simpler. Um, it's, it's the belding ground squirrel. And th these ground squirrels, uh, you know, they, they have burrows and so forth. They pop up and look around. And uh, they're, of course, on the menu for a lot of um, predatory birds and other animals. So what happens is that if uh, a, one of the building ground squirrels sees, say, a hawk flying, uh, it will put out a shriek. And now that shriek warns the other ground squirrels that might not have been aware of the hawk. Uh, and it, they sent, they can go scurrying to their, their holes. But this is also a call that says dinner is right here, right? When, <laughs> I, when I'm shrieking, I'm, I'm giving, you know, I'm drawing attention to myself. So, so there is an altruistic behavior. So how did that altruistic behavior evolve? Now, the, the, a standard story with an evolutionary theory is based on the notion of what, what's sometimes called the selfish gene. Right. So, so the, so of course that's just, you know, a, a figure of speech. The genes have no emotions or anything like that, but it is, it's that genes, the idea is that instead of looking at things evolutionarily from the point of view of the organism being the central feature, look at it from the point of view of genes being the central feature and whether a gene gets passed to the next generation is being sort of the central central feature guiding evolution. And, and the idea then is this, that if there was a gene that coded for that kind of behavior where you give a shrink when, when there's danger, it, there is a chance, of course, that that squirrel that gives the shriek will die. It, there's an increased chance. But if that gene is in all the other squirrels or most of the other squirrels, then the, the other squirrels have a better chance of surviving with that gene. And that's the point. Those, if the other squirrels have the gene, then sacrificing one squirrel could be worth the, you know, the punishment, <laughs> the worth, worth the cost, uh, mm -hmm. if it saves a bunch of other squirrels that have the gene. So, so in this point of view, and, and again, I'm not saying this is the final word or the right way to think about it. This is just the, the best way that we have it right now in our best scientific theory. The idea is that the, the gene is, quote unquote, willing to sacrifice you to let the gene itself get passed on into the next generation through others. And so this is sort of a deflating notion of altruism that we get from, yeah. from evolutionary theory, that, that it, it, our feelings of altruism that we might put to some higher, uh, deeper moral sense is just genes pulling the strings of our heart to do what, what uh, they want our bodies to do so that the genes will have a better chance of getting into the next generation. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is right. I'm saying that this is the best science that we have so far, right? This is, and if we don't like it, then it's up to us as scientists to, you know, try to come up with a deeper, deeper theory um, that, that is mathematically precise. Um, so what you could do is take what I'm saying today as a, as a call for a better theory, 
if you if we don't like this theory. Yeah, yeah. Like the cells in our body that are dying because they want to maintain the vitality of the body to keep us alive. The willingness on the cell level to die to keep the integrity of the body intact. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, every day about 60 billion cells in your body are killed. Yeah. 60 billion. And and many of them are through apoptosis. Where I mean, you tell them to die and they commit Harry Carey. And they <laughs> they're gone. And and this is all so here's a case again of cooperation, the ultimate altruism, death for the for the whole body and then then you're creating new cells um 60 billion new cells on on average every day to to re to replace them and you can think of your body in that sense as quadrillions of organisms separate each cell is an organism that have agreed to cooperate not to fight or or to at least reduce the fighting um and One way of thinking about cancer is um, cancer are, are cells that have sort of um, decided to break the pact that they they no longer you know want to uh, be told when they have to die and and in fact cancer cells are immortal in a sense they 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 reproduce they, so they they're breaking the pact so cancer happens when we don't cooperate so so you can see that in some sense every multicellular organism is embodying. An, uh, an incredible amount of cooperation. So, so in some sense, cooperation is, is at least as important, if not more important than competition. That's so interesting when you realize that what you mentioned, the uh, cancer is a, as a, in a way the parasite on the system. So that's the one that is in the attitude of competition while the other uh, cells basically sing in a choir are seeing are, are as as operating as a unit that are willing to die to keep the integration going of the integrated system of the body so there's in the body we have both systems we have the cooperative part and we have the competing part that's right and and i think it's it's quite interesting just as you know looking at it scientifically that that both are involved but i think what this discussion illustrates uh, don uh, very clearly is that um, a seemingly purely biological uh, concept such as competition or or comp cooperation as well it has all kinds of higher order philosophical implications and i think your work um, illustrates this uh, more than any other because what you're basically saying is that evolution which operates through the forces of competition and maybe some cooperation uh, is what sets our view of reality is what determines what we perceive as real so in a sense uh, this biological concept of competition it rises up uh, all the way to determining what we consider real and true uh, could you comment on that Absolutely. And, and this is a bit of a surprise. It's, it's sort of counterintuitive. Most of us, including my, my very um, you know, esteemed colleagues uh, in, in cognitive neuroscience and evolution, tend to think that um, evolution surely would shape our senses to show us truths about reality. Right? The idea is that organisms that see reality more accurately should have a competitive advantage over those who see reality less accurately and thus 
they're more likely to survive and pass on their genes, which code for the more accurate perceptions. And, and so after thousands of generations of that, we can be quite confident that, that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately. And so we see more accurately. And, and again, no one thinks that we see all of reality truthfully, but we see those aspects of reality that we need to survive in our niche is, is the idea. And that seems eminently plausible. Who could argue with it? But, but I decided to, to check uh, more carefully. I mean, it, the nice thing about scientific theories is not that they're true, but they're precise. And so we don't have to wave our hands and debate and fight and so forth. You can go prove theorems. And evolution by natural selection, um, whether or not it's true, is precise. And there's evolutionary game theory. So we can go see what that theory actually says. And so I you know, first... Um, you know, I'm not a mathematician, so I first uh, worked with some graduate students 10, 12 years ago, and we did simulations just to see what would happen because we could write evolutionary game simulations. And I thought maybe, you know, it would be, um, maybe it takes too much time and energy to compute the truth. Maybe there are selection pressures not to see the truth because it's just, you know, it's a lot of time and energy. Maybe we'll have heuristics and shortcuts because of that. Well, and the simulation showed that that, yeah, that plays a role. The simulation showed something deeper, um, and this was uh, Brian Marion and Justin Mark who who did the simulations. Um, what they what we discovered was that it's the the payoffs. When I talked about the hawks and the doves, and you get certain payoffs for winning and you know, penalties for losing and so forth. Those payoff functions they're the heart and soul of of these games, right? And what we discovered is the payoff functions do depend on the state of the world. But almost surely those payoff functions erase information about the structure of the world. That's the key point. I'll say it again. The payoff functions which guide whether you're going to survive or not, they do depend on the state of the world and its structure. But they almost surely erase all information about the structure of the world. And since evolution is shaping our senses based on the payoff functions, and the payoff functions have no information about the structure of the world, there's no way for evolution to shape our senses to see the true structure of the world, whatever it might be. It's that, it's that simple. And so, so it's a theorem of evolution by natural selection. The probability that any of our perceptions, space and time, colors, objects, no structure of our perceptions reflects true structures of objective reality, almost surely. The probability is zero that we see reality as it is. That now, again, that's, I'm not saying that that's true. I'm saying that it's a theorem of evolution by natural selection. So, so as a scientist, again, uh, you know, my attitude is I, I love our scientific theories because they're precise and they, they encode untold years of work by brilliant people that have really done their homework and tried to write down with mathematical precision what they've learned. And it's the best we've got, but it doesn't mean it's right. So, so all we can do as scientists is to look at our best scientific theories. I respect them for their, their brilliance and their precision and then as a scientist, I also pay them the honor of trying to destroy them by, by finding where they you know, might have holes, where they might have flaws, 
not not in any negative sense. I mean, I'm, I'm going to respect the theory that I destroy because it's they're brilliant theories. But the idea is to try to then get to the next level. So, so about 120 years ago, many physicists were quite convinced that um, Newtonian physics was the final word in physics. And there was a, a, a sort of a complacency among many, not all, but many physicists that, you know, it's been done and we shouldn't encourage bright young people to go into physics. They should go into some other fields. There's, there's just a few little things to mop up in physics. Well, th there's a different attitude that you can have, which is Newtonian physics has been great for several centuries, but we should be always looking to try to break it. And if you'd been looking to try to break it, you're going to make progress more quickly. It turns out it needed to be broken. And, you know, eventually in Planck in 1900 and Einstein in 1905 found, you know, the ways to break through uh, eventually. Um, and, and so my attitude as a scientist is that we should just assume, it should just be a matter of assumption that our current theories are wrong. Not trivially wrong. Right. I mean, these are the, the works of brilliant people who've won Nobel Prizes and so forth. It's not trivially wrong. These are. And so the current generation has to study these theories very, very carefully. And then it's going to be hard work to come up with the next step because, you know, you have to. Yeah. So it, this is not trivial. So, so that's that's my attitude in, in all this is, is that um, when I'm looking at evolutionary theory and I'm saying that it um, entails we so, don't see reality as it is. That seems to be a theorem of evolution. Now, one can then say, well, I think that we do see reality as it is, or at least some aspects of reality. In that case, then you owe the scientific community a deeper theory. What is that deeper reality? How come in that deeper view of reality is possible for creatures like us to see some of reality? And also you have to explain why in this deeper theory, it looks from the point of view of evolution by natural selection, like you can't see reality yeah. as it is. You have to explain the emergence of evolutionary theory as a special case of this deeper theory. So, so and that's what I'm up to. I'm, I'm looking for a deeper theory. It, it, in my case, I'm looking for a theory in which consciousness is fundamental, but that deeper theory then might allow that some of our perceptions are true, despite the theorem that I've got with, by the way, the theorem that I should give proper credit, Chaitan Prakash, my, my uh, longtime friend and collaborator for, since the 1980s, um, was the one that I took this to. When I said, you know, we got these simulations, it looks like, and I said, yeah, I think there's a theorem here. So he and I discussed it, but, but he's the mathematician, Chaitan brought it through. And we have a couple papers that were just published um, recently that, that have the theorems. So, so now what Chaitan and I and, and others are looking for is a deeper theory of consciousness and the dynamics of consciousness, which um, then the, the job we have to do is to show how this deeper theory gives rise to what we call space and time and physical objects, what we call matter. What if, if the space and time and physical objects aren't the fundamental reality, consciousness is the fundamental reality, then we need a theory of consciousness that's absolutely mathematically precise, that says what the dynamics of consciousness is, and explains exactly how space-time emerges, say as a user interface um, that some conscious agents use to interact with all the other conscious agents. And within that interface, we have to then show that we get evolution by natural selection as the 
the interface view of this dynamics of consciousness. In other words, evolution by natural selection is what the dynamics of consciousness looks like viewed through the restricting lens of our space-time interface. And if we can't, by the way, my theory of consciousness cannot be taken seriously until we can do that. Until we can show how to get space-time emerging and get evolution by natural selection emerging, also, by the way, special relativity, general relativity, quantum field theory, until we can get those things emerging, there's no reason for any scientist to take a theory of consciousness seriously, right? There, there's, and, and the reason is there's nothing for them to take seriously. There's nothing on the table. So, of course, we always have to have a debate of ideas and, and even mathematically imprecise ideas. There's an, a, a time for that in science. But, but for a scientist to take anything seriously, it has to go beyond, you know, sophomore discussions over beer, uh, about what our ideas are. It's got to be mathematically precise. So, so until we have something that's mathematically precise on the table, there's literally nothing for the scientists to react to. We, there's, mm -hmm. And they should pay no attention. Don, thank you. Uh, may I ask, uh, when, as you know, I'm, I both know I'm not a scientist, but a quality of competition is to exclude. It's a process of exclusion of in, in, in consciousness at excludes. Cooperation is a a thought process, an attitude, a consciousness of inclusion. And when we look about consciousness as something that is non-local, that doesn't know time nor space, but is perhaps the womb of time and space, and uh, we look from the infinite consciousness, we see time-space as a coexisting dynamic process that goes from high density to the uh, to the edges of the universe where it is very thin and where you see that everything transforms and interacts uh, from that perspective uh, and that attitude wouldn't you think that you come closer to to being aware of the fundaments of nature and reality I'm betting that you're right, I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm working on a, a theory of, of consciousness in which uh, we get a mathematical model of consciousness, and and in which I, I anticipate that that cooperation will be a, a key aspect of it. And and I'm thinking also um, exploration, cooperation, and exploration. Yeah, part of one, it. One one thing that see, if we take consciousness as fundamental and we're trying to develop a scientific theory, there, there are two or three important questions that we have to answer. One is, what is consciousness up to, right? If you're saying consciousness is fundamental and, it, and, there's, and it's dynamic, why? Why don't conscious agents just all sit around drinking beer and, and uh, having a good time? What, 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 what is the dynamic of consciousness and, and why? What is, so there's gotta be some really deep principle here, right? That we, 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 some that's impetus, be, some telos. That, that's right. Some some telos. That, that, that's right. That's driving it. And, and second, once we have that, we we also have to explain exactly how space time arises. Right? Space time is our framework. That you know, right, right now, physicalism, which is the dominant view in science, is the idea that space time is fundamental. And and objects in space time are the fundamental reality. Well, we have to explain if consciousness is fundamental, 
how space-time emerges and physical objects. Now, on the first question, what is the dynamic of consciousness and why? The, the, the right answer is I don't know. But, uh, and I only have, because of the poverty of my imagination, I only have one idea right now, which, um, which so I'll throw it out there, but it's more as a challenge for people to, to try to come up with better ideas, right? So the, the idea that I've got um, is, and my team is working on, is, is based on Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And I won't go into the details of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, but, but, but what Gödel's incompleteness theorem basically entails is that there is no end to the exploration of mathematical structure. No matter how much mathematical structure you explore and find, you've only just begun. That's sort of a summary of what Gödel's incompleteness theorem entails. I, mean, I could tell you exactly what these theorem states, but it's, I think it's not relevant right now. So there's this fundamental open-endedness to mathematical structure. And if, so there's two things I need to say about how that applies here. First, when we study consciousness in the, the scientific field of psychophysics, and I, I've studied psychophysics for decades, we study conscious experiences with mathematical precision and with experiments. And what we find is that all conscious experiences have mathematical structure. When you see a ball, you're seeing something with a geometry. The colors are part of a color space with similarity structure on, between the colors. Every conscious experience has structure. There's more to experience than mathematical structure, but there's not less. And so one way to think about it is that conscious experiences and mathematics are related like an organism and its bones, a creature and its bones. You can't have the creature, at least a you know, vertebrate, <laughs> without the bones, but the bones aren't the whole creature. And so that's the way I'm thinking about mathematics and consciousness. There's no consciousness without mathematics, but there's more to consciousness than just mathematics. Now, if that's the case, and if consciousness is all that there is, so consciousness is fundamental reality, then there's nothing else for mathematics to be about. <laughs> mathematics is about the possible forms of consciousness. In that case, what Gödel's incompleteness theorem is telling us is there's an inexhaustible exploration of the possible varieties of consciousness. I call this Gödel's candy store. So Gödel's candy store is, you know, there's this infinite variety of possible conscious experiences that in principle could never be exhausted. We could never come to the exploration, end of the exploration of it. And so that's what consciousness is about. It's the, the kid in the candy store. Uh, this one is great. Now what's the next one? And, and so forth. Now, now that sounds all fun and light and so forth, but now let me pull the dark side or the, 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 the other side of that. To go to the next structure, the next conscious experience, the, that's beyond anything that you've ever had before, you have to let go of what you already know. Mm -hmm. And that can be painful and very, very scary. Uh, you know, in the simplest case, the kid that has the little chocolate and you say, well, there's this other one over here. The kid might go, you know, I like don't force me to have that. I want the chocolate. I want to stick with what I know. I, I want to eat the chocolate. 
And if you tell the kid, but there are other really good candies out there that might even be better than chocolate, he might not believe you. Now, so there's there's going to be, I think, a, this this if this is right, this entails a process that's both a fun exploration and also terrifying at the same time because you're having to let go of what you already know. Don, before I, I ask you the, the $6 million question <laughs> to wrap this up, I, I can't resist but make a comment on your reference to reference to Godot's incompleteness theorem. Um, I'm sure you know this, but for the benefit of the audience, if you go through Godot's proof of that theorem, you will see that where he stumbles on the incompleteness, the part that forces the incompleteness of knowledge is when the system tries to make a statement about itself. There is where it goes wrong, so to say. That's where that's that, that's what is always incomplete. You, the system, will either be wrong about what it says of itself, or it will not say everything there is to be said about itself. And when you relate that to consciousness, the the match is almost poetic, right? It's it's consciousness never being able to say everything. To, there is to be said about what it is. I find I find this a fantastic idea. Now, the, the $6 million uh, question, uh, uh, Don, I think if we step back and, and, and contemplate the discussion we had today, and then we look at our society, um, the values uh, that underlie competition, or competition itself as a value, it, uh, it motivates ideologies, um, it uh, steers our very economic system, um, you know, capitalism is largely driven by competition. It's seen as a, as a fundamental uh, positive force if explored correctly. Um, some see uh, this idea of competition as, uh, as fundamental in nature, as embedded uh, in nature itself. But the discussion today makes it clear that it, 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 it is likely an emergent something, or at least it may be an emergent something that uh, emerge, em, emerges out of a system in which competition is not fundamentally built in. Now, if that is the case, do you see um, implications for how we should best approach life, how we should best interact with one another, organize our society and, and even our economic systems? Well, yes. I think that if the idea of limited resources and therefore necessary competition is not fundamentally correct, suppose that that's just an artifact of our space-time interface and that a deeper theory of consciousness indicates that that's not correct and that there are in some sense unlimited or much less limited resources, then I would say once we get that scientific theory of consciousness, and we're able to reverse engineer space-time because space-time isn't reality, it's just an interface. Once we're able to step behind that interface and play with space-time itself, the actual play with space and time, warp space and time, the technologies that will be unleashed will make everything that we've seen so far seem trivial. And we might eventually then have technologies in which the notion of limits of resources is no longer relevant. I mean, it, 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 so, so yes, there could be a very practical aspect to this. If it turns out that the realm of consciousness is not limited and we're able to reverse engineer the space-time interface and understand how consciousness is related to our interface, and we can now play with our interface instead of being stuck in it and limited by it, we can play with it. Then 
we may eventually find that there's no need for this kind of competition, except in the sense that uh, I, I like to compete with someone on the tennis court, right? It's a friendly competition right. and it's fun, and yeah. then afterwards we have a beer, right? Exactly. John, may I, may I ask, say, if we was, what is it, six, seven billion people now, if we would help and change our neural pathways into moving to more, let's not compete, but let's compare with care in order to share with care, because we help to implant in people's mind that we are living together dynamically in a cooperative system where uh, we do not need to compete, that we would find ourselves later in a completely different evolution. Uh, these, of course, goes together with limited wanting to have all kinds of stuff. It goes together with uh, taking more nutrition out of water, out of breathing. By chewing more, we would need uh, less nutrients and so on and so on. You know, we, basically, you go from stress that is a side effect of competition uh, from which we all suffer now to a more slow life with a different outcome. What are your thoughts when I just a little bit sit, uh, am fantasizing about this uh, road? And what can we do about this together? Well, I, I, I agree. And I think that, that it is possible that and that a theory of consciousness may be a, a, an important way forward on, on this, in yeah. which we mm -hmm. find out that space-time and its limitations are not fundamental. And there's this deeper realm that, that's not limited. Well, you, just to give an example of, of the kind of possibilities, uh, all of modern technology in modern society is based on electricity. We didn't have that 200 years ago, right? We had people playing with iron filings and these funny little rocks and we had lightning strikes and so forth. We had no idea the power that could be released if we understood those rocks and those iron filings and those, those strikes of lightning. It took brilliant people centuries of hard work and luck. And then finally, James Clerk Maxwell writing down what everybody had learned in, in a few equations that then unleashed modern society. Right now, we're talking like this because we got a deeper insight into something that we didn't understand and it unleashed incredible power. And the idea is that is a mere warm up. Once we really understand how consciousness works and the unlimited resources beyond space time, but we have to have our equivalent of Maxwell's equations for this, then I think uh, the notion of limitations may just be something we laugh about in the past that that was just like we laugh about having to light a candle to see into your house tonight, right? Why don't you just flip on the switch? I mean, there's unlimited electricity and light. We will laugh at our current limitations about food and, and so forth and, co and competition. Um, but there's some serious work. I mean, it took a Maxwell and Maxwell was a genius of the level of a Newton and an Einstein. I mean, he was, he was, he was a serious genius. We're going to need, a bunch of researchers to do something the equivalent of that. And, and I'm, so I'm hoping that there's someone who can do this. It's not me. I'm not that smart, but, but someone who's got the power to take 
consciousness and turn it into a truly deep mathematical theory and then unleash what you're talking about, um, which is, you know, Fred, the, the, the possibility of no limits of resources and also maybe a new understanding of what kind of creatures we really are that we don't need to compete. That was an illusion that we had to compete. I would love for it to come out that way. Gentlemen, this is an incredibly fascinating conversation, certainly for me. Um, we have to leave it on this uh, optimistic uh, note uh, for the future. I could uh, sit here together with Fred and talk to you, Don, for another hour easily. Uh, maybe we should do this <laughs> sometime in the future. Um, but in the meantime, thanks so much uh, for being here and talking to us. I've enjoyed a lot. Uh, Fred, any final words? Well, I'm most grateful for Don, it was fascinating and uh, very instructive to me, new insight, and uh, was lovely to reconnect with you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Fred, and, and Bernardo. Both and Bernardo as well, of course. Yeah, thank you, my friend. And thanks to all the listeners for uh, sticking around with us in this, uh, in this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And more is coming uh, in the next couple of weeks. There will be more of the four big themes of our society uh, in which uh, uh, Fred and I will discuss with another guest. So we'll see you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.